first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, writer and podcaster, creator of The Book of Constellations. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about the show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of Saturn's Return. Created by Chance Mulek, Saturn's Return is a complete story told over three episodes, a contemporary fable about loss, sacrifice, and ordinary magic. The story is set in turn-of-the-century America, in the farming town of Barthos. Once Barthos had been rich, crops had been plentiful, and life was easy. But now the town is in the midst of a terrible blight. This reversal of fortune is attributed by some to the escape of a mythological being called the Yellow King, who, legend said, had been imprisoned under the town square for generations. When he fled, he took the prosperity with him. Now facing destitution and an uncertain future, four residents of Barthos tell their intertwining stories about how they will live after losing so much. Mulek premiered Saturn's return as a play, but always intended for it to be an audio drama. The story unfolds in a series of monologues delivered by the four characters. The first episode, Arrival, details the immediate concerns of the town and various points of view on the legend of the Yellow King. I spoke to Chance remotely from his home in New York. Tell me a little bit about yourself as an artist, creator, and a writer. Sure. Like yourself, I have a background in theater. I studied playwriting in college, and then eventually I formed a company with my wife, uh, who's a director. Uh, her name is Melanie Armour, and the company is called Nerve Tank Media. And we started doing experimental performance, and now we've sort of branched off into other things like audio drama and short films and, and things like that. But I, yeah, I, I come to I come to all this as a writer and as someone who is who is interested in theater to begin with. And then started thinking about how to sort of shift the model of making performance to fit the, these sort of more experimental ideas that I, that I was having, I suppose. And mm-hmm. my wife was kind of, you know, having this aesthetic epiphany at around the same time. So we make a good team in that way. My work, you could say that it falls into genres, right? Mm-hmm. It, that I take a, a bit from the thriller, maybe science fiction sort of certain fantasy elements that find their way into my work, but it's really, it's about building a holistic whole uh, among those parts. What was the aesthetic revelation that you guys were exploring with your company? Uh, it's a good question. It's, it, it can look different from each show that we do. I think that's part of what we discovered. Like I had cut my teeth on, on more traditional kinds of plays I started to get interested in experimenting with form. I was hitting a wall with kitchen sink realism, I suppose. I wanted a different way to explore experience. I thought maybe a way to approach it is in terms of a way of speaking rather than what is said, rather than paying so much attention to whatever the, oh, I don't know, the emotional narrative or the, or the message, if you will, or you know, any of those things. I, was, I really wanted to take apart the structures of perform text and see what elements of those remained after I cut away everything else. Saturn's Return reminds me a lot of the living theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That movement in the 60s, it's performative, primitive. It's a connection to art in the natural world. 
There are things I think that theater live performance and audio drama can do, which play mm-hmm. to the strengths of the medium. Again, for me, one of the first questions I asked myself was, what does storytelling look like when you take away the visual? Have you always been a theater kid? Yeah, that was my gateway drug for sure. <laughs> uh, I, uh, yep, yeah, I was in high school, I uh, did some shows, had a, a fun little troupe with a wonderful drama teacher. From there, I was hooked as an actor. I, at some point along the road, realized I prefer writing. I think I'm better at it. <laughs> um, yeah. So the so the acting went away. You wrote plays, is that right? And mm-hmm. screenplays and that kind of yeah. thing? Yeah, screenplays and scripts for TV, those came a little later, but it took me some time to sort of catch up with the mechanics of that kind of writing. And then once yeah. I started, I found I really enjoyed it and I started to have a, some success. So I went out to LA for a bit. Now, Saturn's Return is is your second audio drama, is that correct? You did Dreamland it is. earlier. Yes. Dreamland was an idea that I was kind of bouncing around my brain and I didn't quite know what shape it was going to take kind of at the same time, this was, uh, I don't know, around 2017 or 18, I was listening to a lot of fiction podcasts and really enjoying them and absorbing the elements that seemed to um, make them what they were. And then I realized, oh, this this idea about a criminal who uses the phone to commit her crimes might find its home in audio drama. So I started scripting Dreamland based on on that idea. Did Saturn's Return start as a play? It did. I was commissioned by a friend of the company to make something. It was midway through 2020, if I'm remembering right. And, you know, none of us are really doing anything. And I was stuck. I felt like I needed to absorb more than output. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. was, that was kind of my feeling in the depths of the of the pandemic. Not that we're through it yet. But um, sure. but at that point, it was, it was a little rough. And so, uh, so I got this commission and uh, it was, you know... A, a way to write something for our company. Around the same time, we had a partnership with uh, Tompkins Corners Cultural Center, which is uh, in Carmel, New York. So we had a venue and we had a couple of nights. That's kind of how it was born, I suppose. So what is the story in your own words? You were commissioned, but I'm also wondering what the genesis of the idea was. One of the first things I started with was creating something that played to my strengths and also answered the moment in a way. I knew that there wanted to be four voices, and I knew that that it wanted to be a series of monologues rather than dialogue scenes. Is there a reason why? Partly to challenge myself, um, because that's not something I've done before. And partly for practical reasons, it needed to be COVID-friendly. Sure. As a live event, seemed to to make more sense if the actors didn't necessarily have to be right up against each other, you know, in dialogue scenes and such. The title came fairly early. I wanted to talk a little bit about the current moment, but not in a reactionary way. I'm always hesitant of art that speaks too quickly, (laughs) you know, and that tries to sort of jump in and make something of whatever experience we're all in together in that moment. For me, some of the best art happens when you can get a bit of distance on it. So I was looking for so sort of a skewed microcosm of some of the upheaval that many of us were, and frankly still are, experiencing. The title Saturn's Return, I believe that that refers to uh, the time when Saturn returns to the spot in the sky when you were born, which is right. 28 and a half years or so. And so a Saturn's Return is therefore kind of like a milestone or a generational milestone in one's life. Is that the intended meaning here for you? 
Yeah, that's part of it. Not to be too abstract, but I was thinking of that in terms of society, I suppose, you know, a kind of a momentous, um, you know, to some extent, everyone feels like they're living through history. I think we all have a bias about that. But I do think that these are times that will be uh, written about. So I was also perhaps more thinking of of the Roman god, uh, mm. Saturn, and his Greek equivalent, Kronos. These are deities of abundance and harvest and wealth and renewal. The sense of a return presupposes that they left. Yeah. And so at least some of these characters in this piece believe that we're looking at a new golden age in some way um, yeah. after you know so much hardship. Talk to me about the conversion of Saturn's return to an audio drama. It was always sort of baked into the idea of developing it that I would eventually make a, a podcast out of it. So I wish I could say I struggled and struggled, but I, I didn't, <laughs> uh, I actually didn't do too many edits. I will tell you that I, uh, I lost the entire script, uh, on my hard drive. Um, oh, no. Yeah, it, that it went away. Uh, I was updating my OS, and uh, a lesson to all: um, oh, wow. be sure to back things up. Yep. So I had to start over at a certain oh, point, and that was I imagine. quite painful. It took me a while. Uh, I was about halfway through when I got going again. The things that were most most important stuck. One of the things that I'm curious about is that when you perform a play live there's a lot of visual elements that you can use to help guide the audience's attention to make sure they pick up on needed information, keep track of mm -hmm. things and so forth. You lose that visual element when you switch to audio drama. How did you approach your writing in such a way that you could help maintain that for a purely listening audience? Part of what we wanted to do was set as many things into the language as we could and then build physicality around it. There weren't any purely visual moments that changed the sort of drive of the text. With this show, we were careful to support the story first with minimal lighting, with much of the sound. In fact, maybe all of it or almost all of it is in the audio drama. You mentioned the music, and I want to say I, I really enjoyed the soundtrack. A lot of folk instruments. In the first episode, we get to hear a whole chorus, a, a hymn to the land and to the Yellow King. For all our blessings and good cheer, we thank our Lamb with healing hand, who brings us more than we demand, this lasting word that we all sing. Glory to the King, across our land, across our hearts, we lift our praise till we depart, in darkness He will light our Talk to me a little bit about your decision to use the music that you did. You know, I will mention Chad Rains. He's, um, he's a wonderful musician and singer-songwriter. He's got a couple of bands, and we have worked with them before. From pretty early on, I knew that there wanted to be musical support. It partly plays into the <laughs> folkiness of, of, of the piece and the fact that I do imagine it as a early 20th century small American town. It's a little bit, I suppose, Faulkner country in a way. We brought Chad on pretty early. I worked with him on those two songs, and I wrote lyrics for both of those. He was very much on our page about the world we were in. Our performers also happened to be amazing singers, and so, uh, so playing into their strengths a little bit. The story is about uh, a little town called Barthos. 
to me, it feels very turn of the century America. There are four characters who talk about the recent drought and loss that has taken over their community, where they were once a prosperous and wealthy farming community. Now they have nothing. Mm. Everything is dying off. They're having to shear food. There's even some sort of advanced rot, which is happening where there's a horse that dies and is consumed by maggots within hours. Tell me about this in your own words. What is the story about to you? There is a sense that that there's been a change. That's kind of what I wanted to start with in the first episode. In introducing these folks and their perceptions of what has happened and what will happen kind of drives the narrative a little bit. I was trying to find story in the collision of these viewpoints, these sort of common experiences that the town is having, drought, some degree of famine. It's a, it's a kind of encroaching doom after decades and decades and decades uh, of richness, really, yeah. and relative ease. Each of them has a very different way of dealing with that. Einar, who starts things off, is a farmer and has served the community for, for many years with his father. We learn that he's kind of a fanatic, and that arc is sort of integral to, to what happens. We had 13 cows on 40 acres of land, in addition to five goats, two horses, and one gabled chicken coop. I also kept bees near a shed behind the house. We grew corn, sweet potatoes, and eggplant when there was demand for it. This might sound like a lot of work for two people, and it was, but not as much as you'd imagine. That's because we were blessed. And not just us, the whole town, really, for as long as anyone could recall. Barthos was the envy of the region, which is still worth saying, even if some don't like to hear it. He, of course, was benefiting directly from the richness of the land mm -hmm. um, as a farmer. So he lost a lot. For sure. It sort of took everything from him. Well, I should say it took, it took a lot from him. And what took the rest from him is another character named Reese. He's new to town uh, with a plan to sort of rejuvenate things. Einar suspects his motives for sure. Yeah. I think we need to point out that there is a, um, I don't want to say magical, but mythological perhaps nature to the wealth that the community has enjoyed. And that is that there is a figure in their history called the Yellow King. And he came to town, the histories say, and he healed a dying girl. And he brought wealth and prosperity with him. And in order to preserve it for themselves, they imprisoned him inside mm -hmm. a house in the town, kept him there for generations. Recently, it is believed that he has escaped. And with his escape, the wealth went with him. This is a fantastic right. mythological story. Clearly, some people believe it to be true, whereas others are more skeptical. I really like the idea that you get all this wealth and excess and comfort, but at the cost of imprisoning something powerful and magical, denying it its freedom. Um, yeah. It was important to me in terms of a way of thinking about the prosperity that they all enjoy. But I also, I knew that I didn't want to ultimately answer that question in any direct way, whether, whether there is a being, whether he, whether it's uh, mortal or immortal, the fact that they, that they've dubbed him the yellow King. There's a bit of a history of that. That's the book by Robert W. Chambers, right? And then later that got adapted into the Lovecraftian kind of world. 
Exactly. Right. Yeah. Lovecraft took it and ran with it a little bit. So I thought that would be something I could draw from and shape a little bit to my own devices as a kind of a demiurge. Well, I was curious if you were intending to lean into the cosmic horror area in this story. Right. Uh, I'm definitely, I won't say a devotee, but I, I enjoy uh, that material. It gives you some latitude. You're able to go to interesting places using maybe some mythology as a springboard that people would be familiar with. We also get to meet Frida, who is mm -hmm. the town librarian. She seems to be rather skeptical that the Yellow King actually existed. Yeah, she's she's my skeptic. Front-facing, she sort of maintains what she sees as a noble eye of, of the existence of the Yellow King. She knows that her townspeople, most of them, believe in him. Part of her job is to keep things going. Um, but, you know, she can't help herself. She is interested in questioning these things. It's a tricky line for her to walk as the records keeper, as the representative of history, really, for the town. Um, mm. She does have a certain responsibility. I'd like to call your attention to one passage in particular. It's dated 209 years ago during a long drought that had crippled our economy and our public health. We saw him approach, tall, sallow, a hat made of straw covering most of his face. This you have as evidence. And he did kneel and lay his hands upon the girl. And within minutes, she who was still had breath once more. She who was still had breath once more? Okay, that sounds important, but who was she? Where was she? And who was this strange fellow with the dramatic hat and the medicinal touch? We'll never know, because the previous page has been literally ripped out of the record. Uh, we also meet Tilly, who is mm -hmm. a fortune teller of sorts. Um, she uses numbers in order to foresee people's futures. She has been accused of setting the Yellow King free. She talks about how she wants to travel, but she's never been more than a mile from the town. There's something that she yearns to do, something greater that she mm -hmm. wants in her life, but she seems unable to accomplish that. She's kind of a heartbreaker for me. I mean, as a, as a character, she is someone who definitely wants to believe, unlike her sister, uh, Frida. She's of the same family, of the same background, the same pedigree. She's, you know, the same things were expected of her as Frida, but she has decided to go another route. As you say, she never gets herself out of town. Somehow yeah. she's never able to sort of make that leap, you know, for whatever reason. She clearly believes in the Yellow King. Ultimately, it, it gets her in a bit of trouble, I think. What's happening now, of course, I didn't see. People wonder why I didn't warn them, but I deal with individuals, single movements, and I never had any cause to read him. We're not allowed down there anyway. I guess that's why Frida doesn't believe he exists. Or there's some hysterical version of him, and that's all. It's his spirit that escaped, his life force, and our life went with it. You know when you get a letter from someone you aren't close to and you're reading between the lines trying to guess what the tone is? Are they being funny or deep or just reporting stuff in a weird order? That's what it's been like for me. I'm, I mean, I can get there. I'm clear about you. It takes a little longer is all. We're picking up the pieces. 
seeing if there's enough glue, enough hands, enough time. Everything used to be so fucking simple. Now we're not sure where to turn. The truth is, he suffered for us, for our benefits. He wanted to go, and if someone helped him, which they absolutely did, we should throw a party to end all parties and toast the son of a bitch. And then, of course, you mentioned Cornell. There's four monologues in the first episode, and each character gets one. We don't really learn a whole lot about him. He clearly is very charming. He's got a good charismatic presence about him. He ends up buying Einar's land, and then Einar's father ends up going and living on Reese's property. So there's a certain you know, relationship of status from early on between Einar and Reese. So it's from these four different perspectives that the tension of losing everything and an uncertain future, all of these four people negotiate this tension, which, as the episodes continue, do in fact lead toward something rather more dramatic and dangerous. It's fair to say it gets pretty dark. <laughs> um, when people put so much stock in the world and their material possessions and their identity as their work, when all that evaporates, what do they have left except fear and anger? To me, this play is sort of asking questions about how do we as human beings negotiate that? How do we deal with that um, when that happens to us? Uh, because it will. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. That's yeah. yeah if, if I've done nothing else, <laughs> I, I hope that, that, that that's in there. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> good. What makes a good monologue? One thing that I, I love about Shakespeare's monologues, many of them, and this isn't just true of Shakespeare, it's also some of his contemporaries, but certainly for him, they begin in one place and they end in another. And what I mean is they don't just sort of follow an emotion or an idea from point A to point B. They begin with a character feeling one way. And they end with that character deciding mm. upon a different action, right? Yeah. And they right. had to sort of talk themselves into it. So it's rhetorical in that way, but it's the most active sort of rhetoric that we can imagine. And they're conspiring with the audience to sort of figure out what the yeah. way is. They don't go in with the intent of telling you something. They go in with the intent of figuring something out. You know, and that's one of the things I think that makes not just Shakespeare, but any kind of performance more effective is to have the character realize in the moment that they're speaking something mm -hmm. that is true or that something that is that's that's just now occurring to them like right. it's 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 one thing for macbeth to suddenly realize you know he gets the news that his wife committed suicide right and it's one mm -hmm. thing for him to go well she should have died I, hereafter i would have had time to deal with right. that later you know and and life is meaningless anyway right. yada 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 no right 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 but yeah. it's a whole different thing for him as he's getting on his armor to go out to fight to get the news that his wife died and then to, for him yeah. to go oh my god my whole life is meaningless Right. Yeah. At absolutely. that moment, that's where the power is. I, I agree. Yeah. I think that having characters discover the mm -hmm. meanings of what they're saying is powerful stuff to listen to and to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And that my hope is that I, there's some piece of that, that, that is in some of these speeches, that there's some activity going on. There's some internal conjugations being made, like there's something happening for me. That experience, that journey, I guess, is definitely wrapped up with the language. I can't necessarily tease them apart. This is, you know, the form and function argument. Finding where the right language for the right idea and vice versa is key to making an experience that feels, you know, electric and lived. What do you struggle with? I struggle with finding the right container 
for the things I want to speak about. Each project is different, of course. Things tend to come to me still as plays or screenplays because that's my my background. But sometimes I'll, you know, I'll get something like Dreamland that wants a new form or I'm making notes for a novel now because that's, you know, uh, what I think this idea wants to be. I guess the the struggle is being patient mm-hmm. with myself until I'm able to to find the vehicle or the container, as I said, for this stirring. You know, I've this is my what you are. Number, I'm looking here. You are my 38th interview. Almost all of them are people that are writing audio dramas with the idea that they're in television. We're going to do seasons and we're going to continue it. And then we got another season coming and so right. forth. And, and I'm, right. I'm totally down with that. I get that. Mm-hmm. Saturn's return is this sort of nice single story. And mm-hmm. I have a feeling, I mean, I can ask, but I don't think there's going to be a season two of Saturn's return, right? There's probably not. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, right. I mean, I think it's really interesting to see that, um, you know, it's not something that you want to sort of like continue, but rather I've got a story to tell. I think it's, it's this medium. Here it is. I'm going to put it out there and then now I'm going to go do something else. I think there's a lot of people who, and I, I kind of count myself on this a little bit. I think there's a pressure to, to follow the model mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than just keep on making stuff and being okay with it, just being that and then making something else. Yeah, absolutely. With Dreamland, I did have a more sort of serialized idea in mind. But yeah, as you say, like this piece wanted to just be this long. If I feel like I can deliver something that satisfies in some way, I suppose, with three episodes to create an experience that a listener can live in for a little while, you know, and maybe take something with them after they're done, then I feel pretty good about the job I've done. What lessons have you learned about creating audio drama that you can share with people who might want to create their own? This has probably been said before, but work with great people, for sure. It's collaborative. I enjoy giving this material over to people who are more talented than I am in these, other, in these ways and seeing what they discover. That's sort of the first audience, if you will. You know, sometimes you can, you can sort of look at it that way. The other, the other thing I'll, I'll say, it, it has helped me anyway to have the full story scripted before you go to record. I can see it working the other way. I suppose you you could experiment. But for me, it makes all the difference in the world to know what the destination is before we start, because then we can sort of build the whole thing as in a more organic way, I suppose. How do you measure success? Mm. Yeah, I I saw this question uh, in the email (laughs) and I was and I I was like, I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to nail this one. Now I'm like, I don't I I have no idea. This, this was a this is a struggle for everyone that I asked this for because <laughs> to be perfectly frank, one of the reasons I ask it is because half the time I don't know how I measure success either. Sure, know? right. Well, and it can change too, right? Right. Like, right. yeah, I, I think maybe it's project specific. Maybe that's why I'm I'm struggling with it. Yeah. I think if I'm looking at my my career, I suppose, or if I'm looking at my life as an artist, I suppose I could say that. Success is always having another idea. Hmm. Maybe that's as as sort of succinct and basic as I can get about it, which is part of the reason 2020 in particular was so tricky for me because I I really didn't have any ideas. I don't think I I was alone in that. That's a kind of a, not to be too over the top, but it feels like a kind of a death to me. If I know in me somewhere that there will always be another idea that I can come to and explore, then I feel successful. 
Before the turn, before the landing of Cornell Reese, I was not given to feelings of pursuit. This was due to my work. Cobblers pay unusual attention to shoes. Builders notice joints. And me, as someone who farmed, kept an eye on the ground. That day, however, I was looking behind me. I was looking ahead. And I saw there were still no lights on at the house. This was the beginning of the end of everything we owned. Saturn's Return is a fable of scarcity, an illustration of how the quest for wealth and the fear of its loss damages everyone. The use of multiple monologues is unusual, but Mulek's careful use of language elevates the prose and heightens the feeling of magic and dread that pervades the story. You can listen to Saturn's Return on most major podcast platforms or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or if you're an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our webpage at thefirstepisodeof.com. If you like down-to-earth sci-fi audio drama, check out my show, The Book of Constellations, wherever you get your podcasts. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time. Until next time.